All right, if you go ahead and open up your Bibles to the book of Matthew, the book of Matthew. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed our study in the book of Ephesians, um, but I wanted to take a little bit of a break tonight and shift over to Matthew. Um, I always kind of feel it when we go too long without teaching a passage from the Gospels, and so I am excited about that. Uh, yeah, you can go through the kitchen, Annabelle. The other one might be locked. So the title of our lesson tonight is The Sign of Jonah. The Sign of Jonah from Matthew chapter 12. And you can just follow along with me as I read this passage. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and an adulterous generation craves for a sign. Yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This passage today is a, an indictment against those that are self-righteous. It is an indictment against those who think they can save themselves. And you have the pretentious scribes and Pharisees coming up to Jesus asking for a miracle or a sign to affirm that he is who he claimed to be. This, after Jesus has spent a significant portion of his time committing miracles and giving signs and evidences of his, that he is the Messiah. The first point on our outline would be the scribes and the Pharisees request for a sign. The scribes and the Pharisees request for a sign. And we see that in verse 38. And some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And so they have this kind of feigned respect. Teacher, because Jesus has been doing that. We often think of Jesus' ministry as just healing and miracles and walking on water, but a significant portion of it was teaching. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, who are these scribes and these Pharisees? The Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. They were the ones that people went to and they asked questions. When they wanted to know about God, they went to the Pharisees. And the scribes specifically were experts in the law. All right? The experts in the law. And for them, the law was both their moral code but it was also their civil code that they lived by, and it was their ceremonial code. So if they wanted to know something about government, they went to the law. If they wanted to know something about, you know, worship or ceremony, they went to the law. If they wanted to know if something was right or wrong, they went to the law. And the scribes were the experts in the law. And these experts in the law and these religious leaders were hard-hearted and self-righteous. And they wanted to make Jesus stumble. They wanted to thwart his efforts. Who 
are they? Look at Matthew 2. I hear those, those pages turning ever so slightly. I know, I ask you to write something down and turn at the same time. How cruel of me. But you can do it. What is, uh, what's Yoshi? Do? Yoshi, are you going to turn? Come on, Yoshi. Don't be like Yoshi, okay? Bring your Bible. Take notes. You can tell me why Yoshi's sitting on that chair later. Matthew chapter 2. You're familiar with it, right? This is the visit of the Magi. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and gathering together all the chief priests and what? Scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. So Herod, the Gentile ruler on behalf of the Romans, went right to the scribes. Tell me about your law. Verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem, they knew the answer. This is where the Messiah was supposed to be born, for this is what has been written. So Herod had a question about the Messiah. They had an answer immediately, but they also could go to what? Chapter and verse. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. If anyone should have recognized that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was perfectly fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, it was them. But sometimes knowledge does what? It puffs you up. Makes you pride. It makes you dependent upon self. So the things, the signs, the virgin birth, born in Bethlehem, all of these things that were just slapping them in the face, they were ignoring. They were ignoring. Go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, Jesus says this about them. Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They have taken their place, they have taken the authority that someone like Moses would have and says, Therefore all that they tell you do and observe... But do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Now, isn't that interesting? Why is Jesus saying you should do what they say? Well, they're the authority. They are the leaders there. But he's saying you've got to see beyond their hypocrisy. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens. And they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. The phylacteries were, were kind of those uh, prayer boxes that they would wear. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by men. Guys, look at verse 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humble. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. The scribes and the Pharisees had come up with rules. And these rules were essentially fences. All right? So let's say this, okay? You know Philippians 4.8 says that you should only dwell on things that are pure and that are excellent. Okay? So that's a biblical command. What is a fence that you could set up to keep you from breaking that command? 
put restrictions on your phone, okay? So you could put that fence to say, look, I don't want to be tempted. I don't want to go there. I want to think there. But is it scripture and verse that you have to put restrictions on your phone? It's common sense. It's wisdom, right? Uh, there was a time when I was wrestling through Philippians 4.8 that I said, look, I'm just not going to ever watch a movie again. I'm not going to watch a movie because then I know that I'm not watching a bad movie. Well, how long do you think that lasted? All right? That was a fence that was unattainable and it was unnecessary, right? So the Pharisees and the scribes would set up all these fences. So on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day, you know the idea, right? You're not supposed to work. You're supposed to rest. You're supposed to worship. And they would say, well, you can't walk this far. Because if you walk that far, that, that's sin. And even today in Jerusalem, on the Sabbath day, you, the elevators stop on every other floor. So you get on in floor one, and it stops in floor three. Well, why? Because pushing a button is lighting a fire. And that is against the Sabbath. So that's, okay, so I'm on floor two. Now I have to take the stairs to get to floor two. Which one's more work? It doesn't make sense, right? But they had these man-made rules and regulations, and most of what they did was to make themselves look better so that they would give, but as they were giving, what did they do? They had people sound trumpets. Why trumpets? Because they're really loud so that everyone would notice, and they would stand on the street corners, and they would pray. Well, why there? Why didn't they go inside? Well, no one's looking inside. And the phylacteries and all of that stuff, they were about self-righteousness. And they were leading people farther away from God. How did they respond to Jesus? These hypocritical religious leaders, how did they respond to Jesus? We'll go to, to Matthew 12. They accused Jesus and his disciples of breaking the Sabbath. They looked at the actions and what Jesus and his disciples did and they took their extra special rules and they tried to apply those rules to the Lord of the Sabbath, to the King of Kings, and it doesn't work that way. But they did this to undermine them and Jesus says this in verse 7, but if you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Look, Scribes, Pharisees, you don't even know who you're dealing with. Jesus says, I am the master. I am the owner of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is for me. I'm not breaking it. My disciples are not breaking it. They objected to Jesus healing on the Sabbath. I mean, think of that. Verse 9, departing from there, he went into their synagogue. Now, their synagogues would kind of be like their, their church. He went in there, and it says this in verse 10, and a man was there whose hand was withered and they questioned Jesus asking is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath now they didn't really care about the answer why did they ask him that so that they might accuse him they want they hated Jesus so much and isn't that wild to think of Jesus therefore Jesus was to heal Jesus was to help Jesus was to teach Jesus was there to save and they said I don't want that I want my sin. I want my pride. I want to look good in the eyes of men. I don't want you, Jesus. So they're going to try to accuse him. Verse 11. And they said to him, what, uh, he said to them, what man is there among you who, if he has a sheep and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable than a man is a sheep? 
So then it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Is it lawful to heal? It's lawful to do good. And healing is good here. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. Now what should happen at this moment? All of them should fall on their knees and worship. What? Did you see what he just did? He just... But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as how they might destroy him. How did they get to that point? The light came into the world and darkness hates the light. So they hated Jesus. They loved their sin, which is an example for us. Because if you're going to be light in a dark and dying world, how is the darkness going to treat you? Well, they're going to hate you. They're going to pick on you. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to try to to trick you and they're going to try to make you stumble. That's who these scribes and Pharisees are. They ascribe the miracles of Jesus to the power of Satan. Remember, this is where they say, oh, you cast out demons by the power of Satan. And all of this is just in chapter 12. So we're looking at chapter 12, verses 38 through 42. In chapter 12 alone, you get them doing these terrible things to Jesus. And now, they're asking him for a sign. Why don't you prove it to... Have they not been paying attention? He just healed the dude's hand. He just cast out demons. The hardness of their heart has blinded them. John MacArthur writes, because of Jesus' popularity and obvious supernatural power, they had kept their opposition largely to themselves. Much of their thinking and planning would be lost to use were it not that Jesus continually pulled away their mask of false piety and refused to let them hide their evil character. Don't you love that? They're over there in the back whispering and scheming. Remember when he said, um, son, your sins are forgiven? The whole paralytic on the mat? What did they say when Jesus did that? Trick question. They said nothing. What did they think? Who's this guy? Thinks he can heal sins? And Jesus read their mind and he called them out on it. He called them out on it. And it's these people that are asking for a sign. What is this request that we see? Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign for you. This is the whole, uh, dance for us, puppet. We're ready now. What do you got for me? What are you going to, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What were they asking for in Matthew 16, verses 1 through, thir- uh, 1 through 3? The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show him a sign from heaven. And in your Bibles, do any of y'all have like a little note next to it that kind of define what a sign is. Anyone have that little concordance type of thing? Little number one? Maybe you need different Bibles? Yeah, what do you got, Jake? An attesting miracle. All right, so remember, the New Testament was written in Greek, and we've taken the Greek and we've translated it into English as best as we can. And so the word sign is helpful, but you're like, what is it sign? Is it a Waffle House sign? Is it a Target sign? Is it a Walmart sign? It literally means a miracle that attests to the fact that he is the Messiah. Well, that's too long to write. So they just put a sign, but you have that little side note that is there. But he replied to them, when it is evening, 
You say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time? An evil and an adulterous generation seeks out a sign, and a sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah, and he left them and he went away. He didn't even explain things to them. You don't really want a sign. You got the sign of Jonah. And he didn't even explain it to them what it was. And then he walked off. He knew that they asked because they were evil and adulterous. They were thinking about believing in Jesus. No, they weren't. They were evil and they were adulterous. And they wanted, they wanted to see him stumble. He calls out, he says, they crave for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but a sign of Jonah the prophet. Jesus, they say, give me a sign and he gives them more than they can handle. More than they can handle. Don't you love that when they, they ask Jesus like the question about, okay, okay, so if someone dies, the brother's supposed to marry the wife, right? According to the law. And he's like, yes. And they're like, so a guy dies and the brother marries the wife. And then he dies and another brother marries the wife. And then he dies and another one. Blah, 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 blah. So in heaven, who is she married to? And Jesus wasn't stumped. He wasn't confused. He said, there is no marriage in heaven. And all right. And he blew their mind. Well, he's going to blow their mind. He answered and said to them, he first of all gives an open rebuke. An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. You are evil. You are adulterous. You are craving and yearning for this sign here. 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, For indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. And these are typical of their culture. All right? The Jews had kind of been programmed. Um, remember Gideon? What was the sign that Gideon was asking for before he went out to battle? Yeah, the wet fleece thing, all right? It was like, I want the fleece to be wet. No, I don't want the fleece to be wet, whatever it might be, all right? There's signs throughout where people of, uh, that are Jewish, that are Israelites, ask for signs. Greeks aren't into the signs in 1 Corinthians. They're more of this like philosophical wisdom, all right? And what Jesus is going to do, he's going he's to call them out on this. Matthew 15, just a couple of chapters later. You hypocrites! Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. They themselves were actually what? They were a sign that Jesus was the Messiah because Isaiah prophesied that during the days of the Messiah, hypocrites would arise. And here they are being those hypocrites. He says, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. Well, what, what does Jesus mean by that? They know the story of Jonah very well, right? They understand it, okay? Well, here he explains. In Matthew 16, he doesn't explain. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. We get this. We know what he's talking about. We know that Jesus is going to die 
and he's going to be buried, the heart of the earth. And we know that he's going to be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Okay? So three days, three nights, and he's going to raise again. Right? He knows that. We know that. They go, are you off your rocker? What are you talking about? They knew the Son of Man reference was about him. What, what do you mean? Even later on, when Jesus told his close disciples that he was going to die, did they believe him? No, no, you can't go away. You, you can't die. It wasn't until closer to the cross that they actually listened to him. Jonah was a prophet who ran away from the Lord. And so the Lord caused the giant fish, the sea monster, to swallow him for three days and for three nights. This is what we would call an obvious correlation. Here is a connection that to us it's obvious, but to them it wasn't. There is a correlation between Jesus and between Jonah. No sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Three days and three nights. I, I want you to flip over to Jonah, and I know you know the story well. Hopefully this uh, summer you came and you listened to some of those lessons, Right? We were talking, to, you remember that? Jonah 3, I was teaching, you were there, you were listening. You forgot everything I said, didn't you? Shame on you. You know what, I bet Yoshi remembers. Good old Yoshi, he never forgets. Go to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the Amittai, saying, Arise. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God, and they threw the cargo ship... Uh, which was in the ship, into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen sound asleep. Slip down to verse 9. Then the men became extremely frightened, and they said to him, How could you do this? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he told them. So they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. Go down to verse 15. Actually, verse 14. Then they called on the Lord and earnestly pray, prayed, O Lord, do not let us perish on account of this man's life, and do not put innocent blood on us, for you, O Lord, have done as you have pleased. So they picked up Jonah, they threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. And look what happens here. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. So Jonah didn't want the Gentiles to be saved. So he runs away from the Lord. And what happens on this boat? These Gentile sailors become saved. Oh, poor Jonah. I mean, God's just saving people right and left in the book of Jonah. And Jonah's like, oh, these were pagan men. 
And when the sea was raging, and when they knew that he was a Hebrew, and they threw Jonah in, and then the sea got calm, that was sign enough for them. They said, I will worship the one true God. But then the large fish comes, swallows up Jonah. Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Jonah 2, 1, he prayed to the Lord his God. He's repenting. Verse 7 of chapter 2, while I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. My prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. The Lord commanded the fish and it vomited up Jonah onto the dry land. Now, it's not a perfect correlation. Jesus was not in sin. But Jonah was being punished and corrected because of his sin, right? Jesus, though, was perfect, but he was being punished as if he had committed our sin, right? The wrath of God is being poured out upon Jesus on the cross. And so he's dead. He's in the tomb. There's our correlation. So when Jesus rose from the dead, they should have come back to this prophecy and realized what he was saying, all right? They wanted a sign. And he said, I'm not going to give you one except for this, which can you get a better sign that you are the son of God than raising yourself from the dead? No. What was Jesus trying to accomplish? He was giving the scribes and Pharisees a sign of his credibility. He wants them to put a pin in this one. He wants them to come back to this baby because he's telling them, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise again and that's the sign that I'm giving you. And you know what? Some of these scribes and Pharisees are actually going to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the, the day of Pentecost when Peter preaches and thousands come to know the Lord? It works. John MacArthur says, Jesus' resurrection after three days was not the kind of sign the unbelieving religious leaders expected and demanded, but it was infinitely more miraculous and wonderful. It was the final sign Jesus directly gave to the world of his messianic credentials and saving power. He was also giving the rest of his audience a sign of his credibility. He was giving the rest of his audience a sign of his credibility. Let's look at John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins, uh, coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. But if as a Christian, we openly denounce sin, the world says, oh, you need to be like Jesus. You need to love like Jesus. You know what I need to do? I need to make me a whip like Jesus, all right? Jesus made a whip, and he ran all of those people out of the house of the Lord. They make Jesus sound weak. He's love, yes, but he is also holy and hates sin. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. 
The Jews then said to them, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Ooh. He's not actually talking about the temple. He's talking about himself, right? The Jews said it took 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So that when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. His disciples are going to go back to this and say, oh, why didn't we see this? Man, Jesus is awesome. We're going to go out and serve him. He is so credible. So credible. That was an obvious correlation. The rest of the passage contains an obscure connection. Obvious is like, boom, in your face. Obscure is like, eh, if I squint real hard. They had to know a little bit more to get this one, okay? It says, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, first of all, when the scribes hear this, how are they feeling? When the Pharisees hear this, what are they thinking? Help me out. Okay. Nineveh. Gentiles. Outsiders. Outcasts. Wicked, filthy, dirty people. Nineveh is going to stand up and condemn who? The scribes and the Pharisees. Ooh. Guys, they did not like this. This did not make them happy. Not make them happy, but there is a connection here, right? The people of Nineveh at the preaching of Jonah repented and a large portion of that city comes to genuine faith in the one true God. It's amazing. I, I want you to go back to Jonah, right? We got we to look at this, okay? And I know, I know you listened to my lesson on Sunday night on Jonah 3. It's on your playlist that you revisit all the time, but just in case you forgot, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Remember, this is after he's been vomited out. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. This time, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an ex exceedingly great city at three days' walk. Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, the, the beauty of God's word is he only tells us what he tells us. We don't know what else Jonah said. Is there more to the message? Is this all he said? Was the fact that he was a Jew enough to teach them that, hey, this guy is different? The people of Nineveh believed in God. They called the fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation. In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, 
herd or flock, taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Let men call on God earnestly that he, uh, that each may turn from his wicked way, repentance, and the, from the violence which is in the hand. And who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, that God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And so some asked the question, did they genuinely believe in the one true God? And Jesus answers the question. One day in heaven, these men of Nineveh, who grew up as pagans, violent, wicked people, and repented and believed in God at the preaching of Jonah, they will stand up and these scribes and Pharisees, they will condemn. And it says that what? They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Now, what kind of guy was Jonah? We hope that he got his act together, right? But in Jonah 4, what does he do? He actually like pouts and throws a pity party because God didn't destroy everyone, okay? That's weird, right? That's weird. And God had this thing with this plant and all this stuff. And we don't know. Maybe at the end, Jonah said, man, I was a giant jerk. Man, praise the Lord. Maybe he did. But Jonah preached and they were saved. Now the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, the Savior is preaching to them and they are rejecting the Savior. They are rejecting the Savior. When you look at Jonah to Nineveh, Nineveh was a pagan and wicked city. The Jews were the people of the covenant. Jonah risked the wrath of God rather than see them saved. Jesus endured the wrath of God in order to see them saved. Jonah simply told them to repent in order to escape God's judgment. Jesus shared the gospel but also thoroughly taught the people. The people repented and believed at the preaching of Jonah preaching of Jesus, some believed, but most rejected him. And they cried out when he was on the cross, crucify him, crucify him, and they mocked him, and they spit on him, and they beat him, and they celebrated. One greater than Jonah is here, and they reject it. He's also going to give them another obscure connection. And we don't have time to, to go there and to look at but this is the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba. It says, the queen of south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. God's plan for Israel was that they were to stay put and they were to obey the Lord. They were to serve him and they were to be a beacon of righteousness. Okay, They served one God. The surrounding countries served many gods. And Solomon rose to the top and the nation rose to the top and people all around heard of the greatness of Israel and the greatness of Solomon. And Israel was strategically located on a trade route where people would have to come by and come through. Well, the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, heard about this Solomon guy. And she came and she investigated. And from this time, she is going to place her faith in God. 
is going to place her faith in God because of Solomon's faithfulness and the testimony that came out. And we look at this and we say, well, look, um, teacher, I kind of know the rest of the story with Solomon. I know he had, what, over 600 wives. I know that he was given to wanton pleasure in parts of his life. That's the messenger that brought her to the one true God. Well, remember that Solomon does repent later in his life and he brings glory to God and he regretted and he hated those sinful actions, right? But yes, God saved her through this imperfect earthen vessel. Well, now Jesus is saying, I'm here in front of you. I am greater than Solomon and you are not listening to me. Well, how do we wrap this up? What does this have to do with you? I know you're not a scribe. I know you're not a Pharisee, right? First of all, I don't want you to neglect the rich truths of the Old Testament. Be honest. When our reading plan went to Genesis, how many of you said, I'm going to sit this one out, bro, and when we get back to the New Testament, I'm going to jump back in? Or you looked at it and you said, I don't know how applicable Genesis 32 is to me. Oh, there is depth. There is richness in the Old Testament. The story of the Queen of Sheba isn't random. It's God ordained. And it's recorded in his word for us to grow and to learn. Do not neglect the rich truths of the Old Testament. Think about Joseph. We've been reading about Joseph lately, right? Wow, from Joseph, you learn how to flee temptation. You learn how to put up with mean and hurtful siblings. I don't know, yours aren't trying to like kill you. Maybe they are. They're not trying to sell you to Midianite slave traders. I don't know, maybe they are. You learn how to, to wait and endure through difficult situations. Man, there's a lot you learn from Joseph and the forgiveness that he had and the understanding of God's plan. So much, but don't miss out on that. What else do you have to learn from the Old Testament? Do you know anything about Malachi? Do you know what a stud Hosea was? I mean, do you know about these people? Do you understand them? Do you look at the book of Leviticus and say, boring, I'm out. Guys, when we get through in the, the reading plan and we go to Exodus, don't tune that out because you've read it before. Learn, grow, don't neglect those truths. Secondly, understand that self-righteousness blinds people from the truth. Self-righteousness blinds people from the truth. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean that you don't have any money. It means that you realize you have nothing to offer God. God, I got nothing. I don't have any obedience. I don't have any talent. I don't have anything. I come to you as a rotten, terrible sinner, poor in spirit, and I plead with you to save me by the blood of the Lamb. That's salvation. But the danger of where you are, we think of, man, there's someone in Africa that's never heard about Jesus. And we need to go share with them, which is true. And we think, man, that stinks for them, right? You have heard about Jesus so much that your heart and your conscience is absolutely seared. 
You think because you go to Awana or because you've memorized a few verses or you show up to church or because mom and dad love Jesus, you think you love Jesus and you don't know him. The men of Nineveh will stand up one day and condemn you. The pagan queen of Sheba will condemn you. If you are here tonight and you have never repented and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, shame on you. You need more evidence? No. You need a better word? No. You need a more loving and caring example? No. You have no excuse. Do not allow your self-righteousness to trick you, to deceive you, to lead you astray. You are not good. There is nothing good in you. Jesus says, Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. This is the chapter before our passage. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Guys, the unbeliever is fighting against God. The unbeliever is opposed to God. And he says, you can stop the fight. I'll give you rest. Take, your yoke, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And sitting here and listening to that message are the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is pleading out to them, I want to save you. I will save you if you come to me. And they say, no thanks. Why don't you give us a sign? Are you blinded by your own self-righteousness? Do you often compare yourself to others? Oh, I'm not as bad as them. Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? The Pharisee, God, thank you so much for making me not like him. It doesn't work that way. It's your relationship with God. It's your perfection. Do you often justify your actions away? Oh, I wouldn't have done this, but this. And oh, you don't know this. And my circumstances of life. Don't let that be you. You see, I had a, a friend that I'll never forget our conversation. It was sixth grade. It's a friend named Robert. And uh, we went and we visited his church together and we were talking about things. And I was like, well, Robert, do you want to become a Christian? You know, Jesus lived the perfect life. He died on the cross for you. Do you want to be saved? And he said, look, I will. I will totally believe in that when I get to see a miracle. If, if, if God just does one miracle, I'm in. And I was like, have you read the Bible, man? Do you not see those miracles? Do you not see that Jesus rose from the dead? You're alive at this moment. That's a miracle. Creation is a miracle. But was that enough to him? Do you think if, if Jesus had come down at that moment and parted Grapevine Lake or something like that, do you think Robert would have believed? No. Some of you, that's what you're thinking. Stop using that as an excuse. You have the sign of Jonah. Jesus died and he rose himself from the dead. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. You must come to him broken of spirit, repenting and believing. And if you have believed him, go tell other people about him. Go tell other people. Let's pray. Lord God, we do love you. We thank you for this time, the, the beautiful richness of your word. I pray that you would guard our hearts against self-righteousness. For the unbeliever that's self-righteous, break them, bring them to a place of repentance and faith. For those of us that are Christians, 
Give us a proper humility and understanding that anything good in us is of you and anything good we do is because of you and it's for you. I thank you for these men that are here tonight and I pray they, they would love Jesus and serve him with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.